Good morning, everyone. Morning. If you've not met me before, my name is Jack, and I would like to start this morning by saying I am very sorry. Um, if you're sitting there and there is a either a suspicious stain in the carpet or a slight pungent eggy smell, that is my fault. I uh, stop making that face, Rich. Uh, it's not what you think. It is. I'm one of our Infusion Friday night youth group leaders, and on Friday evening we had our Easter special extravaganza um, and I will be honest some hard boiled eggs and some raw eggs were thrown and some mess was made um, so the smell is my fault I am very sorry but I'm not just here to apologize this morning you'll be pleased to know uh, we're here and we're looking together and we're going to be looking at the question why Easter Why Easter? And I thought the best way to to, to look at this would be to look together at the end of the book of Mark in the New Testament. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 16. If you've got one of our church red Bibles, this is page 1024, I believe. And we're asking the question, why Easter? Why are there millions of people across the planet this weekend celebrating Easter? eating chocolate eggs and dreaming of the Easter bunny. Why are there people doing that? And as I thought about presenting this to you this morning, what popped into my mind was my Easter experience growing up in going to um, a more traditional church, slightly different to how we do it here. Uh, But the biggest thing that popped into my mind was uh, this one dear sweet old lady who would find you. She She would sneak up sort of out of nowhere. She would pounce on you on Easter Sunday and she'd always say the same thing. She'd go, he is risen! I don't know quite why she sounds like a witch, but she's, she wasn't. She was a lovely lady. She was a lovely lady. But she'd pop out and she'd go, he is risen. And I realised after a while of going there that there's a standard response you're supposed to say. Does anybody know it? He is risen indeed. But I tell you what, it doesn't matter. How, even though I knew that, she'd still catch me off guard. Every year she'd jump out and she'd go, he is risen. And I'd just go, uh... Okay. (laughs) And the reason that's popped into my mind this morning is because I think there are two groups of people here today. There are some of us here this morning who are following Jesus and we're so excited about Easter. We're going around going, he is risen. Woo, there's one. (laughs) But then there are other people here today. Some of you, if you were really honest, you'd say, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow Jesus. Others of you, you'd say you do follow Jesus. You, you come to church regularly. You, you, you live your life for Jesus. But when you hear that, you hear he is risen, your response is, okay. And it's not I hate that. I don't want anything to do with that. But it's not this deep sense of awe and celebration that Jesus is alive. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this bit in Mark chapter 16 where we're presented with the reason for Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see why this requires a greater response than just, okay. So let's start. Mark chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, 
brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. So there are these couple of Marys and Salome. And they, uh, are, they were friends of Jesus. They knew him in his earthly ministry. They saw Jesus die on the Friday night. And then the Saturday after was, uh, for the Jews, which they were, was like a holy day. It was a special day. They weren't allowed to do work. So they'd seen Jesus die on the Friday and they'd seen him get uh, buried as well. And because they weren't allowed to do that on the Saturday, the burial works were kind of a tad rushed. So these ladies, they're thinking, we'll go back on the first day of the week, which for them was a Sunday, and we'll go and we'll finish the funeral preparations. And so they're going back to finish the job, and we see in verse 3, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So on the way there, they remember that they'd seen Jesus get buried, and that over the entrance of the tomb was this huge stone. It would have been about six foot high, it would weigh between two, maybe two and a half tons, and this stone would be really easy to get in place, because what, the way they'd do it is they'd like lever it into place, roll it down a slope, it would cover the entrance of the tomb, but once it was there, really difficult to move. And so what Mark is telling us here is that the Marys and Salome don't plan ahead. So they're on their way there, they're going to the tomb, they're going, all right, Mary, yes, Mary, uh, have we uh, got everything we need? Uh, well, we know where we're going, we're going to the tomb where Jesus was buried. You've got the spices? Yeah, I've got the spices. Okay, oh, wait a minute, we've forgotten the eight to ten blokes it's going to take to move that stone. They ask the question, who will move the stone? Because they know on their own they don't have the muscle to do it. So then verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, thanks for that Mark, we've covered that, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and that at the entrance of the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, sitting on the right side. Now Mark doesn't tell us that this is an angel, but Matthew and Luke's account do. And so the Marys turn up. And they're expecting to see a closed tomb with a dead body inside. But what they find is a tomb where the stone has been rolled away and there is an angel inside. And the Bible tells us they were alarmed, which is standard when the divine breaks into human history. People get alarmed. So the angel tells them in verse 6, don't be alarmed which is standard for an angel because normally people see them, they freak out and he goes, calm it down. And then he goes on, he gives them perspective. He says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He says, guys, you're looking for Jesus. And let me be really specific because there are a few Jesuses around here. You're looking for Jesus from Nazareth. And to be really specific, you're looking for the Jesus from Nazareth who was crucified. The one who you know was crucified, I know was crucified. We all know he was crucified. You're looking for that Jesus, the Jesus who was buried here. You're not in the wrong place, you're in the right place. He was buried here. Look at the place where they laid him. He's no longer there. He's gone. Where's he gone? He's not here because he is alive. He is risen. Now I'd like to pause there. Just for one moment. Because I want to apply this to us. 
Because at this moment here, Mark has been doing something really significant. And it's so easy for us to miss the monumental thing which he is doing. Mark, up until this point, has been presenting it to us as if it's history. As if this really happened. As if this actually took place. You see, when Mark was writing this, you had kind of two options. You either wrote history or you wrote mythology. That was your options. And Mark writes this as if it's history. Myths didn't really sound like this back then. Myths were a bit weird. They were all mystic. They had symbols. Often a dragon would be thrown in. It was just all round odd. But here, Mark is presenting this as if there were real people, real events, and this actually happened. He's stating it like historical fact. That's why he mentions the women's names, the two Marys and Salome. There's design to that. That's why it says Mary, the mother of James. You see it again earlier, if you were reading through Mark's Gospel, you get to Mark 15, and it's where Jesus is about to be crucified, and they're forcing him to carry his own cross. Jesus struggles, he can't carry it anymore, he is so physically weak from all the beatings and lashings from the Romans, that he stumbles, the crossbeam falls down, and they pluck a guy from the crowd, and it says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was forced to carry the cross. It says Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know what? We read that today and we go, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Great, moving on. What am I supposed to do with that? Tell him, say hi. Make a note of it so that when I play my biblical version of Trivial Pursuit, I have the answer. We, we don't know what to do with that. But all through the Gospels, as you read the New Testament accounts, not that many people are named. Why does Mark say that here? Why does he say... Um, why does he say Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? It's because the early audience that he was writing to, they'd have known those guys. They'd have heard that and they'd have gone, No! Alex, that's your dad? Why didn't you tell me that? Your dad's in the Bible, that's cool! <laughs> There's purpose to what Mark is doing. Mark does the same with the Marys and Salome. He says their names. Why? Because these are people who could verify this. Mark's saying, don't just take my word for it. Speak to these guys. They can back it up. C.S. Lewis. He was a literary professor at Oxford University. Uh, He was an atheist. Then he became a Christian. And he was an expert in ancient literature. And he said this. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like and none of them are like this. There are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without any predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who does not see this simply has not learned how to read. Now he gets a bit condescending at the end, but that's kind of his vibe. He's, he's an Oxford professor, he's allowed to do that. Okay, But what, you get the idea. Mark is saying this really happened. 
Like Rich was saying to us earlier this morning, before we started singing in worship, it's a real historical event. It actually took place. And Mark is at pains to say that to you. He's going... I'm not saying that you've got a bit of this is real life and then here are some spiritual things I've thrown in there just to make you feel good. What Mark is saying, he's going, I'm telling you, the divine broke into human history. He goes at lengths to verify that. And the question is, will you? Will you? Do you have the courage to look at this and say, is it true? Did it really happen? Did Jesus really live? Did he really die and live again? Because if he did, then he said he was God and he demands my allegiance. You must deal with this guy because no one changed human history like Jesus Christ. And the good news is that if this is true, then it's true no matter what you feel. No matter what you feel. Some people might say, you just believe that because it makes you feel good. No. We believe it because it's true. And if it's true, it also makes you feel good. And you can see that in verse 7. In verse 7, the angel goes on, but go tell of his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That's amazing. Verse 7, the angel says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. He says, and Peter. Why does he say that? Why does he say, and Peter? Peter's one of the disciples, isn't he? Surely he could have put, just tell the disciples, and that would have included Peter. Well, two nights before this, Peter was in a really dark place. There was this arrogant moment that he had when Jesus was talking to all his disciples and he goes, all of you are going to betray me. And Peter then pipes up and he goes, not me. All of these other losers might do it, but not me. I won't do that. And then Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and he says, look, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows twice, before the end of today, you'll deny you even know me. And Peter says, no. That will never happen. No chance of that. But when Jesus is on trial and Pete sees all his mates, all of his social circle mocking the one he loves, Jesus Christ, the person he'd follow for three years, and then someone comes up to him and they go, Hey Pete, don't, don't you know that guy? Aren't, aren't you one of them? Pete goes, No, I don't know him. No, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure I saw you with him that one time. No, that wasn't me. You'd, I don't know him. No, it really was you, wasn't it? That you were with Jesus. And then he starts to swear and curse. And he goes, no, I don't know him. And then the Bible says in that moment, Jesus looked directly at Peter as the rooster crowed. And Peter ran and he wept. So I think Mark chapter 16 says the disciples and Peter because he'd messed up so badly that if it just said the disciples, both Peter and all the other disciples would have gone, hey Pete, I don't think that includes you anymore because you really screwed up this time. 
And yet the beautiful thing is that in this moment, Jesus says to his, tell the disciples and Peter, I want to be with them. I mean, think of what Jesus could have said. It wasn't just Peter. All the disciples had deserted him. He could have turned up. He could have risen from the grave and he could have gone, you no good, backstabbing losers, cowards. It's too late to apologize. Where were you when I needed you? He could have laid into them. He could have banished them. He could have beaten them if he so wanted. He could have never spoken to them again. And yet on the back end of the cross and such huge betrayal, Jesus says, I want you with me. I want you with me. Now, a while ago, I read this really fascinating article in a National Geographic magazine. And it was this um, American university that had done this study across the globe. And they had been uh, seeing what morals different cultures have. And this article said that it doesn't really matter where you go in the globe, that there is this basic set of morals that all cultures seem to adhere to, they seem to hold on to, they seem to follow. That across the globe, there is this rough set of rules that people seem to follow by. That nowhere does there seem to be like cowardice is something to really uh, aim for and it's a good attribute. Across the globe, they studied these cultures and they said that they looked at them and there was this basic rough set of lists that these things are right, these things are wrong, and you're supposed to follow life like that. And yet, everyone that they interviewed, they asked them, have you kept this moral code? Have you done everything that's right and not done everything that's wrong? And everyone that they spoke to said no. No. I knew what was right, and yet I didn't do it. I knew what was wrong, and yet I did do it. Everyone said that they were wrong, that they hadn't done that. And yet we don't like to admit that, do we? None of us do. When we mess up, we make excuses. We say things like, you didn't know my upbringing, you don't know my circumstances, you weren't there, you didn't see the situation I was in in that moment and the pressure that was upon me. We come up with excuses. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. Think about it. When was the last time you looked someone that you'd wronged in the eye and you said, I know what I did was wrong? It's inexcusable. And I'm sorry. We always make excuses. Why don't we always like doing that? Why do we hate saying things like that. It's because I think there's something in us that says, if I keep going, if I keep trying, if I work hard enough, I can make up for it. I can attain to be the good person that I'm supposed to be, even though all the evidence seems to contradict that. If we stopped for a moment and we realised that I am wrong, that I can't get to where I want to be, that would feel like death. When we say, this is right And yet this is where I am. It feels like death. It feels horrible. And yet Peter's in this moment where he can't make an excuse. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew what happened. He's there and he goes, this is right. And this is where I am.
And that's a devastating place to be. I remember ages ago, maybe six, nearly seven years ago, when I was a pretty brand new Christian, I was telling my friend about Jesus and I was saying to him, all you have to do is believe in him and ask him forgiveness and you will be free, you're forgiven, you can have life in Jesus. And he looked at me and he said, I've got a problem with that, Jack. He said, you're a nice guy and you're saying Jesus can forgive you, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And what he was saying to me was, I know what's right and I know where I am. And I hate to say, but at the time I was such a new Christian, I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know what to say to him. But if I could go back in time now, if I could go back and explain it to him again, this is what I would say. I would say, there is some good news for you. It doesn't feel like or sound like good news at first, but there is good news. That feeling where you're falling short, where you haven't made it, where you feel lost and you feel broken, that's from God. Because he hates your sin more than you do. And you feel like this should be dealt with, that it shouldn't just be swept under the carpet and ignored. Well, you're right. God hates it. It will be judged. It will be dealt with. And everything from all genocide committed across the globe, right through to every angry word you've said just because you were tired, all of it, all of the wrong you've done will be dealt with because God despises it more than you do. Because the good gifts that you have been given from God, you've used to offend him and others. We've taken the mouths that he's given us. We've taken the lives that we live And we've twisted it to our own means. And instead of giving glory to God, we use it for ourselves. And God hates that. His sense of justice is even higher than ours. And it will be punished in a place called hell. And yet, here's the good news. There is eternal punishment for sin. But there's also the cross. There's the cross. Jesus said, I will give my life as a ransom for many. He says, you deserve to die because of the wrong things you've done. But I am going to step into your place. Jesus said, I'm going to die instead of you. My blood will be spilt instead of yours. Yours doesn't have to be. If you want to see sin punished, look to the cross. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, is how 1 Corinthians puts it. God punished sin on Jesus. He took the wrath of God upon himself to deal with the human problem so that we could reconnect back with God himself. And how do we know that punishment has been paid for? How do we know that all the wrong things that we have done are dealt with on Jesus Christ? How do we know that there's no longer anything tying us down and keeping us back from God? Well, let me put it like this. If you committed a crime 
and you were sent to prison, how would we know that you had paid the penalty? How would we know that your debt to society had been paid? Because the prison door would swing open and you'd walk free. How do we know that Jesus' death paid the penalty for sin? Because three days later, the prison door swung open and Jesus walked free, risen to life. Jesus says, my death is for you. How do we know it worked? Because he's alive. Because he's alive. Jesus can now look at someone who is screwed up so terribly. Someone who has done so much wrong. He can look at Peter and he can say, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't need to call him every name under the sun. He doesn't need to go, look, Peter, you better work your butt off now because you're paying this back to me. You owe me big time. No, he doesn't need to say that because the debt has been paid. Jesus has already dealt with it. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the punishment so that now he is free to embrace Peter, to embrace his disciples. You don't need to earn this. It's been paid for. He says, I've died for you. I have risen so that you can now come into God's presence and you can know him. You can live life to the full with me. You muppet Peter. He says it to you too. You can come into the presence of God. The cross has paid for him to do that. The empty tomb shows what Jesus has done. And Jesus now steps forward with his arms wide open saying, come to me. For everyone who admits that they can't fix themselves, they can't attain the standard that's needed Jesus stands with his arms open. He says, come to me. For everyone who realizes that they need Jesus to step in to save them, to fix what's wrong. And when you realize that, it will change everything. If this really is true, if he really did exist, if he really walked on this earth, if he really is God, if he really was a man who really died and really rose to life again, if he really paid for your, your sins, then you can really reconnect with God. You can really find life to the full. If that's true, it changes everything. You'll never look in the mirror the same way again. It changes how you view yourself, how you see your money, how you see your friends, how you see your family. It changes everything. Jesus stepped into history to cleanse your heart so that he can know you and you can know him. That's why we have Easter. That's why there are millions of people across the planet today Celebrating the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I'd like, to, I'd like to just take a moment to respond to that. If I could ask everyone to stand. I'm going to pray first of all. Father, I thank you. 
that we were so far short of your standards, that when we were broken, lost, and far off from you, you sent your son, Jesus. That Jesus, you came and you willingly died in our place for our sins, and that the debt has been paid, that you've risen to life, so that we can have life to the full in you. I thank you, Jesus, that this Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that the debt is paid and that we can be reconnected with God. I want to respond. If you, when I at the start and I said the story of the he is risen and the old lady, and you were one of those people who said, oh, okay then I think this is a time to respond to that. And if you were a person who said, actually, I'm not a Christian. I don't live my life following Jesus Christ. Then you have an opportunity now to respond to that. I'd like to ask every eye to be closed. And if you're saying, I want that life to the full, I want that reconnection with God, And this is a moment for you to do business with him and to welcome him into your life. To to say, Jesus, I am going to follow you. You demand my allegiance, so I am going to follow you. Because you rose from the dead. You said you were God and I believe in you. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to reconnect with God. If that's you, then I ask that you would just, just... as a sign of saying I've done that and I'm giving my life to Jesus and I'm choosing to follow him, then just raise your hand. Just raise your hand to say, Jesus, I trust in you and I choose to follow you. Thank you. Thank you. While we keep our eyes shut, I'd just like to ask the band to come up now. The other group of you, you'd say, I am a Christian. I, I am following Jesus, but I was just still in that Jesus has risen, okay kind of place. It hadn't grabbed hold of my heart. I wasn't in that place of awe and worship of him then what we're going to do now is we're going to sing one more song. We're going to sing in Christ alone. And we're going to use this time to worship Jesus Christ and just think and think upon what he has done on the cross and what he's done in his resurrection that you can reconnect with God. Think of the words that we're singing and use this time to stir your heart to worship God and to engage with him again. Amen.